America, chaos and structure, order and ruins, and the past and the future. In less than two weeks, Americans will go to the polls and decide if they want to continue the policies of President Donald J. Trump, who has been called the great disruptor, or if they desire to go back, back to the status quo of a declining American economy and strengthen the world. Today, we'll be going in-depth to look at the person who helped Mr. Trump craft much of his America First policies that have disrupted the status quo of the political establishment so aggressively, Stephen K. Bannon. Strap in tight, because we're taking on this subject today, warts and all, on The Rob Mina Show. Hey friends, you need to check out Mammoth Nation, America's conservative discount club. They're on a mission to get Trump reelected and keep liberal Democrats, otherwise known as socialists and communists, out of office. These guys really mean it, friends. I wouldn't say that if it wasn't true. Go to mammothnation.com. It's only $19 a year, and here's what you get. Great discounts on all kinds of products and services. You're automatically entered in the Mammoth Election Day sweepstakes with some great prizes, including a 65-inch Samsung TV. You're going to love it. I sure do. I'm a lifetime member. And if you become a lifetime member today, you get a free Trump flag and some other really cool items. Once again, that's mammothnation.com. So let's go. Join us now so we can win in November. For Eternity. That is the title of a book about today's subject, Stephen K. Bannon, the one-time senior strategy advisor to the President of the United States. This fascinating story leads us through a year and a half of interviews with Bannon and other contacts such as Alexander Dugan. These are folks who tend toward a philosophical belief system called traditionalism with a capital T, as the book's author frequently points out. Many Americans are familiar with Bannon and his successful efforts to help Trump win in 2016, but very few have been afforded insights into what created this man, often referred to as brilliant. I'm personally pretty familiar with Steve, having been interviewed by him many times on Breitbart Radio and met with him over a meal several years ago and other meetings. But this story is a remarkable, in-depth view into the man and what has been his growth into who he is. Here is an excerpt from the book framed at a time when I was interacting with him regularly. Quote, it was then late July 2014 and Steve was a little-known figure, the CEO of a right-wing media outlet called Breitbart. He had recently signed on as vice president of a voter data intelligence firm called Cambridge Analytica. He was speaking via video chat to a room full of conservative Christians gathered for a conference in Vatican City. What he began to describe was a nightmare. He spoke about a crisis in the West, about capitalism and the way it had morphed into two terrifying forms, a state-sponsored crony incarnation that enriched a select few with political connections and a libertarian form of selfishness that took no care for community, about the secularization of youth, about a rising conflict with a new brand of Islamic extremism emboldened by newfound access to weapons of mass destruction 
and the messaging power of social media. And about the prospect of violence returning to Europe and North America, he called for capitalism to be subordinated to spirituality, to Jewish or Christian values in particular, so as to blunt its instinct to treat human beings as commodities. He called for a conservative revolution, but not against leftists, but against the conservative establishment in the West, which was peddling elitism and ensuring crony capitalism, close quote. You can see the level of intellectual thought transitioning into modern action in the geopolitical world by Steve's comments, and this was years before Trump's victory. The story is so compelling, I'll even tell you where the book ends. Here it is, quote, the Steve Bannons of our times can find victories where others see defeat. With weapons and armies sometimes manifest, sometimes invisible, they view the world through radically different sets of eyes, witnessing chaos in structure, order in ruins, and the past in the future, close quote. We are very fortunate this week to have the author of War for Eternity as our guest. Benjamin R. Teitelbaum is an ethnographer of contemporary radical nationalism in Europe, a performer of Scandinavian folk music, an assistant professor of ethnomusicology and international affairs at the University of Colorado Boulder. Professor Benjamin Teitelbaum, welcome to the Rob Manis Show, sir. It's a pleasure to be with you, Rob. Okay, Ben, I, ha I have to ask you this question. It's a fill-in-the-blank question uh, because my, my audience is uh, going to get a real treat this time. We don't often have, no kidding, college professors that are active in academia come on the show. Uh, and, uh, and, and I was excited about your book about Steve Bannon, but here's a, here's a fill-in-the-blank question. It's easy. Would you consider yourself a blank college professor? Fill that blank in for me. Oh, and, and it, the question mark stays at the end of, yeah. of the, yeah. let's say, leftist. Okay. That's, that's what I was wondering, because, uh, you know, the book, War for Eternity, is about Steve Bannon, and the way you reached out to me was, hey, you know, do you want to talk to somebody about this experience that I had uh, uh, that hasn't written a hit piece on Steve Bannon? And that got my attention, sir, and I appreciate you coming on the show uh, uh, I'm sure you've researched me. You know that I'm considered conservative, and uh, I've worked with Steve Bannon before. For everybody out there in TV land, uh, I, I'm a friend of Steve Bannon's, and we've worked uh, closely together a number of times. So, so that's where I'm coming from on this interview. So, so tell tell the audience, Ben, uh, a little bit about what you do as far as teaching goes, because quite honestly. Uh, I had not heard of your specialty, and you are you are kind of a music teacher, right? In a way, kind of a teacher. You know, I should I should say off the bat, there there are people who are really invested in the in the sub disciplines in, in the university. You know, they're mathematicians or yeah. they are economists. I'm not that much. Uh, I study I study politics and culture, and whatever department or program or discipline will have me, I'm happy to be there. But I'm very interested in the ways that uh, pop culture relates to politics. And so I've studied music first and foremost. And yes, I'm in the Department of Ethnomusicology half time. That's the sort of I don't know, that's the sort of degree that 
you warn your kids not to pursue, right, when you send them off to college. Uh, I'm also, I, I should add, I'm also in the program of international affairs, so I do a lot of, of work on, on more formal political topics. But, um, but it's my belief, not everybody agrees with me, but that some of the most interesting activity going on in politics is not to be found in voter data or policy proposals. It's in, it's in the raw, chaotic world of, of culture. That's what interests me most. Well, uh, it's interesting because you and I agree on that. You know, uh, Andrew Breitbart famously said, politics is downstream of culture. Uh, and uh, Steve Bannon, myself, uh, Raheem Kassam, uh, Nigel Farage, Donald Trump, I believe, if he sat down and had time to think about it, uh, would all agree with that and do agree with it. And our activities in the political world have been shaped really from that context because we know that, but it's surprising how few people don't understand it, especially in the, in the political professional world, I would say, the, the consultant world, the professional politician world, those kind of things, and really don't want to know about it. But here's another interesting question for you, man. Okay. How did a professor of, uh, and forgive me if I get the pronunciation wrong, of ethnomusicology get interested in this very in-depth subject and, and do this interview over this, such a long period of time, really, it's remarkable. I was, I was very amazed at reading uh, about your interactions with Steve on a one-on-one -on -one basis so often and, so, and for such a long period of time. So how did you get involved in wanting to paint this very in-depth portrait of Stephen K. Bannon? I mean, it, it seems far afield by your title and everything, but I, but I got from reading the book that it's really not. So you did a good job in your message that way, but tell the audience why it's not. Makes me, makes me happy that, that you see those connections. So yeah, I, I'm a, I, I study popular culture, I study a lot of music, but my, my real focus is, is in the way all those things shed light on political ideology. And I've been paying most of, most of my attention for, for almost a decade now to nationalist movements in Europe uh, focusing on Scandinavia. That's I, I speak Scandinavian languages. That's my area of, of primary expertise. And I knew about this little subcategory of, of, you could call it ideology, you could call it religion. It's very hard to, to define, but it, that was called traditionalism with capital T. And I had learned about it for years. It was curious. It was interesting to me. I never paid much attention to it, but I, but I learned a lot about it as, as time went on. When we get to 2016, 2017, Bannon's in the news. New York Times reports that Bannon knows about this stuff, at least just, you know, just a surface level report that he knows about this stuff. And that that really caught my attention. I thought, oh, my gosh, this is this is fascinating. And I got to know I got to know how did he come in contact with this? What is what does he believe? Bannon's interesting. People people treat him like he's a, he's kind of a dull character and very simple. Either you think he's a, an evil genius or you think that he's a phony. But just the fact that he knew about these authors, that let me know that he was an intellectually restless character, that he had a restless mind. And I, I spent a year trying to get to him. And, and when I got to him, I think part of the reason he, he ended up speaking with me so often was that I, we each had genuine expertise uh, and insight into this stuff. One of the rules that I have for myself, especially because I, I like to study living people who you can go and talk to and learn about face to face, is that you never you never go to speak to somebody if you aren't genuinely interested and curious about them, um, because that will that will shine through. If you're there 
being being motivated by wanting to trash somebody, for example, is not curiosity, right? That's that's not approaching yeah. somebody yeah. with open questions. And and I think that Steve, over time, recognized that I was that I meant business. That I was I was genuinely interested in understanding his story and this this untold part of of who he was. So. Thank goodness for that, because because he was very generous with his uh, with his time with me. Yeah, he really was, Ben. And uh, so just just for the audience, give a give an overview of the of the sense of this story, War for Eternity, from beginning to end, real quick, uh, and then we can dive a little bit deeper into some of the subject areas that jumped out at me uh, as having been somebody that's uh, worked with Ben and been part of this this uh, this view about the government in the United States being too powerful and the establishment on both sides of the aisle uh, needing to be reformed and changed dramatically. Yes. So the, the story starts kind of how I, how I introduced it there. That's how the book works out. And, and I, I get in touch with Ben and I'm wondering, does he really know about, about this stuff? I told you capital T traditionalism and we can get into the details in a bit here, but he he showed me right off the bat that yes he did know about this stuff he wasn't just name dropping uh, without without any reference or without any knowledge of who he was talking about in a couple couple interviews he knew about this he knew authors he knew books he could discuss them in detail doesn't mean doesn't mean he wasn't occasionally sloppy doesn't mean he was he was always so organized about it steve is a self-taught intellectual um in in a way that i i, I actually really admire and and a lot of people when you meet someone like that. But I learned not only that was was this a deep concern to him, but that he was interested in in letting it fuel his politics in a certain way, and that he was interested in contacting other people. And that there was something of, it sounds like a, a bit of a strong word, but something of a movement around around the globe of, of thinkers, not political leaders, not, not the face of a movement, not Donald Trump, not Nigel Farage, but the background figures, the intellectuals, uh, in a lot of these nationalist populist movements and causes around the world, there was someone like Steve in a lot of them, someone who had been reading this very unusual philosophy, identified with it in some, in some way. Uh, they, were all, they were all coming up right now and they were all interacting with each other. So my book, my book is, is tracing my journey basically into that, into that intellectual world, into that ideology and also tracing the way these figures are interacting with each other. I, I wrote it somewhat like a, like a thriller, you could say, like a crime novel. But the, the way you know that it's real life also is that it, it's, it's, it's very complex. It's very complex, and the people involved are, are complex people who relate in different ways to their governments. Um, but, but I think it's something genuinely new. There's, there's so much writing these days, I'm sure you know that, Rob. There's so much writing about uh, about populist movements and nationalism, and so much of it is just saying the same thing over and over again. And a lot of it is very alarmist, of course. Mm. So I was excited because I I really discovered happened upon something in my research that was off the map for everybody. This these ideologies, traditionalism is not going to be known to a political scientist 99 yeah. times out of 100, I would bet. Yeah, so that leads me to my first question, and you already touched on it, but uh, dive a little deeper on the definition of traditionalism with a capital T. And we're not talking about traditionalism with a with a lowercase t, like you know, traditionally I'm an American and I love you know the Declaration and the Constitution and all that. 
it's a this is a different animal, right? It is. It is. It kind of encompasses what you were talking about, but really, its its signatures are, are something else. So to start off with, traditionalists look at the world today and they see the disintegration of boundaries and borders in all ways that that, that can be meaningful to you. Uh, that could be national boundaries. It could be identity boundaries between men and women. Uh, and they see them they see them all disappearing and they see a world where everybody is kind of becoming part of one large mass. Mm -hmm. Right. And they think that the principles that this this global mass are all becoming a part of are essentially materialistic. That is to say, the only things that we are really concerned about are going to be goods, bodies and money. Mm -hmm. Right. So larger masses of people, more emphasis and more concern for money, whatever the whatever that is, and just a circulation of products and consuming, consuming material goods. They see, they see all of those, those things happening at, at once. Uh, they see that accelerating in our future, and they think to themselves in most cases that this is all prophecy and this is prophesized. Now, take a step back. Why do they think that? Traditionalists tend to look at old religions, what they believe are some of the oldest integral religions in the world, and they look for agreement among them uh, because they believe that ages and ages ago there was a religion that predates most of those that we, we are aware of and that it, its truths were, were gradually lost and splintered in a number of directions. Most of the time traditionalists are not, are not Christian. Steve Bannon is, and he has an explanation for how he sees Christianity fitting, fitting into that. I went into that somewhat in the book, but not actually not, not in, in depth. But they believe that all of, these, all of these religious teachings were telling us that we're heading towards an age of mass leveling, uh, mass homogenization, a loss of boundaries, and a focus on, on materialism. And that it was also prophesized in their mind that the way to get past this age and get to something better uh, is for it to be destroyed and to, and to be split apart. What they consider to be good is the opposite of everything I was talking about. Mm -hmm. So it is societies and a global society that is very bounded, where there are lots of borders internally and externally in political communities and where the, the primary, the highest ideals are going to be spiritual rather than material. So, you know, to, to put all this in practical terms, a lot of these figures uh, look at, let's say, the left and the right in places like America. And they see that, okay, the right wants lower taxes and they want greater, you know, more un, unencumbered property ownership. The left wants higher taxes. They want to they want to disperse wealth, but they're all everybody's just talking about wealth, right? Everybody's focused on right. economic materialism. They want to see a politics that is not to the left or the right, but up in their minds. That is that is is spiritually based, and uh, and they think that the way that you need to get there is you need to look at our large political entities that exist in the world and you need to shatter them. If that's the European Union, if that is the U.S. federal government, if it is globalization emanating from China, in Steve Bannon's mind, uh, that that can vary. But the, the the key for them is breakdown, and they believe that there is a sort of spiritual religious mandate for that to take place. Do you, do you, did you do you find that that some of them? I got the sense, kind of tangent, tangentially out of the book, that some of them, like you just kind of touched on it, that Bannon thinks about the destruction of the uh, 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 that we're talking about from the global government perspective in China, 
being centered around that. Uh, uh, I don't disagree with them on that. I mean, China has become uh, a, a hegemon that's beyond their wildest dreams with our assistance, uh, as a matter of fact. But there, are, but but it seems to me that uh, uh, that there may be different levels uh, with different approaches where you're not looking at total destruction. Take the United States for as an example. Uh, you know, a person like me who's an American citizen doesn't want to totally destroy the 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 United States of America, but we want to almost, I hate to use the word reset because really it's a step into the future that relies on the original, more original concepts to destroy what's been created over the last hundred years, uh, which is what wasn't intended. So it's kind of, it seems like it's designed, the, the system here is designed to be open to doing that. Is that, is that a correct view of what I was getting? Yes, I, at, at least if I understand what you're saying, Rob, that, I mean, that mm -hmm. a lot of that could mesh with traditionalism. Yeah. And part of that, and, and part what, of it, and what I'm ahead. getting at, Ben, is that after reading the book, reading your emails, now talking with you just a few minutes personally, uh, it seems to me, I mean, this this doesn't have to be like a, uh, a bad thing, like thinking about totalitarianism and those kind of things. Uh, it's It's not that. And it seems like the the media and those kind of things try to paint uh, a lot of us. I know it's happened to me uh, as extreme right wing or extreme whatever and those kind of things. So, uh, so you don't you don't see it as that, do you? This type of thinking around this philosophy. It, it or can be not because if if you pay attention to what you were just talking about, Rob, mm -hmm. if. If what is being idealized is complete destruction, then that's pretty. Mm. That that could be pretty dangerous, right? And and I think yeah. I think most people would react to that. Where where we see the wiggle room is when somebody says, "Okay, I'm going to take that what was originally a traditionalist belief in total destruction and rebirth. I'm going to take that as a metaphor. I'm going to take that as an approximation or something. In in Steve's case, that that's going to help us think." in new ways about about the future of, of our political community. Uh, and and I'm going to adjust it to other other values that I have. Then you're talking about a much more moderated version of mm -hmm. this. Yeah. It's still, you know, that but that's that that's one of the fault lines where we see where we see the wiggle room. I mean, one person that I trace in the book who Steve Bannon met with in 2018 is a, is a figure named Alexander Dugan in Russia. Mm -hmm. um, a extremely well-read figure uh, fascinates a lot of people around the world. Also, has has definitely an apocalyptic has had an apocalyptic vision for the United States, in particular. Yeah. Most of his activism throughout most of his life has been about uniting the various enemies of the United States because he thought that not China but we were the instrument of mass global homogenization. And, and in order for, say, Russia to live out its own destiny in the way it wanted to, it had to destroy yeah. the United States. So, do you, and that do you think that view, that view uh, is a reaction to the over-secularization, what some people see as that uh, in the West, like the United States? I mean, we, we're highly secularized now as opposed to the way it, we've transformed over the last 240-plus years. Is it, a, is it, it seems like traditionalism is, is, is an outgrowth or maybe even a response to that uh, with the intention to roll that back. In a, in a way, I hate to use the term "roll back" because I see it. I see this as a as a step towards a better future. Uh, if I've read the 
concepts correctly in your book. Yes, ab absolutely. And, and it's especially true if you think about the United States, about America's global presence. Mm -hmm. uh, most of our official agenda globally has related to secular political values, democracy and human rights. I mean, we, and we, you know, people may have, have differing ideas about whether or not that should be our profile internationally. But it hasn't been internationally as much an emphasis on, let's say, uh, you know, the Christian majority in the United States. That has not been our, our brand internationally. And, yeah. and so, yes, these figures do, do respond to that negatively. Uh, and, and I think also when you look domestically, there, there are those who would say that if there is a rise in interest in traditionalism in the United States, that could also be a response to, you know, the increasing host, uh, you know, hostility or, or you could say intolerance of public spirituality of all kinds in the United States. Yeah. That we do very, a very secular public square in the United States and those needs for spiritual community, for spiritual uh, belonging and presence that, that otherwise might be satisfied in public life are not being satisfied. Uh, and, it, and it could make doctrines like traditionalism much more, much more forceful and appealing to people. It's interesting. It almost seems like, uh, say, in our Bill of Rights and the First Amendment, the freedom of religion was written in by somebody that might have considered themselves a traditionalist with a capital T to ensure that there was some type of spirituality allowed uh, in the uh, in the population at large. Does that yes. make sense? Oh, okay. sure. I mean, it's a double-edged yeah. sword because the United States, because of that, because of that provision, I think that that's one of the reasons why it was, there's been so much religious life in the United States. On the other hand, it also sets a boundary for yeah. our collective nat nationwide spirituality, that we're not going to have one shared religious practice for everybody. And that um, the flip side is that it might make it seem like it, it has less of a role to play in our lives as Americans collectively. Yeah. But there can also be a bad side to this, and uh, I was uh, uh, I was intrigued in your book. You talked about the the gentleman that uh, uh, that helped start the alt right corporation, you know. So there's there's good and bad projects that have succeeded, failed, et cetera. And this alt right corporation, I'm familiar with the term alt right. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I think I was on a radio show with Bannon. He was interviewing me. Or, or, or we were both being interviewed on, on Breitbart Radio uh, several years ago when he said the statement that a lot of people have attributed to him, something to the effect of, uh, well, we're all outright here. We were a panel on a radio show. Uh, but that was yeah. at a time when it was new, you know. Talk a little bit about that, because you dove into that pretty extensively, didn't you, in your book? Yes, Absolutely. Some of the, again, it wasn't the rank and file of people who were, I think, identifying with the term alt-right, but it was a small, a small group uh, in, you know, of kind of elite level intellectuals, you could say, mm -hmm. uh, who were into traditionalism, into the, into, into the alt-right, and also, and, and also were really kind of extreme, extreme ideologues in this case. But at the very beginning, the, the term alt-right, it comes from a guy, he's actually a, a Jewish guy, Paul Gottfried, who, who, he came up with a term to represent a, a, a brand of, of conservative political right ideology that was against the mainstream Republican Party. And that's, that's what alternative meant, alternative right in that case. And yeah, it gets, it gets associated with, uh, with extremist neo-Nazi stuff eventually, but in, in, the, in the early, yeah. let's say 2016 year, 
it didn't mean that was part of its appeal is that it didn't have it, it didn't have any fixed meaning to it. So a lot of different uh, people were, were were associating with it, including including Steve Bannon. He wouldn't say that today, of course, because he thinks that. Right. That the term was branded to mean something other than what he wanted, but he saw the term as meaning kind of a raucous, almost like the Tea Party, maybe including the Tea Party, but but also a, a new, more populist movement that was going to target the Democrats, yes, but also target the mainstream Republicans. So I assume all this sounds very familiar, familiar to yeah, you. That's very I ran for the U.S. Senate in 2014, the first time I'd only been out of the military for two years. That was what that run was all about. And my platform, if you go back and research, it was very similar to what Donald Trump is implementing uh, right now. Uh, things like uh, becoming energy independent within five years and those kinds of things. Uh, and focusing on American citizens uh, as we go through the world of being a foreign power, but also, you know, take care of our own folks too and put priority on those so and, and part of that is pushing back and and disrupting i call it more disrupting than destruction uh, uh the establishment what i call the uniparty i don't see republicans and democrats at the national level as being uh, the ones that are in power in in the beltway uh, as being a separate party they're, they're they're they work together uh and uh they have common goals that are outside of what the people's goals uh really are or should be the way that's the way so I would have said that same thing and did say that, I think, probably on that same show uh, uh, when Steve did. I think it was around the 2016 era. But yeah. Uh, so but yeah, it's been but it's been it kind of gets to my question. This this concept of traditionalism seems like it, it might be easy for the, you know, the Hitlers, the Mao Zedongs, uh, uh, those types of of authoritarian, dictatorial, totalitarian uh, types folks, it might be easy for them to use that to grow a movement. Am I right there? Having, having a sort of religious spiritual mandate for what you're doing is pretty powerful. Yeah. It's, it's motivating. It's motivating in a way we were talking about technocrats and, you know, scholars who just want to focus on the quantitative in politics. It's motivating in a way that they cannot comment on it, right? It's yeah. it's soul, it's 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 blood, it's your heart, and that's there's there's real power in that, uh, and especially you know, something I haven't talked about, but a, a lot of this, a lot of this worldview, it, it says that time moves in cycles, and and when you destroy or disrupt, you're essentially resetting a, a cycle back to a to a better age um, that will then decline, and that really the the way to be great. Is to go back to a past greatness. It's not about creating something that has never existed because they believe virtues exist in the past, and that 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 way of, of thinking that that can be inspiring to a lot of things, but it, it can also be you know it can also serve as a pretext for some pretty uh, some pretty deadly stuff. So it is it is incendiary too. This is and it's not you know for Steve Bannon this is not the the only time that he's been trafficking in in ideas that are you know, compelling, unusual, but also on the edge of, uh, of, of being pretty fiery. Well, yeah, I think anything, uh, like this type of thinking, uh, could, could be used to go either way, you know, to the good or to the bad, but put it in simple terms. Uh, I think the United States was created out of concepts and ideas. Uh, really, if you look at them very strictly, uh, and, and put the two ideas together, uh, it, it jumps out at me that it, it seems familiar, 
and uh, that's what struck me about your book is is uh, Ben is that uh, when I read it at first I was like well he's talking about Alexander Dugan and and these other folks that are really uh, more than just far right I mean they're they're considered off the charts uh, in some cases but at the same time when you really th- really think about it from an objective view and read it through the lens of, uh, of Steve Bannon uh, and what you know has occurred in the past history uh, with him and what he said and what he's thinking, it jumped out to me that, well, well maybe, maybe this is something uh, that we need to be paying much more attention to because it could be something to work toward the good of a country or a good of a community as opposed to being used to destroy, uh, you know, human beings and, and those kind of things. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, 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 there's, a, there's a golden rule of publishing a book on politics, and that is you are supposed to have, of course, a clear thesis, and it should affirm the pre-existing beliefs of some, some big chunk of the population, right? Yeah. You should tell people, tell people what they already think in new words, and they'll love the book. I... I broke all those rules. I, I have a, this book does not have a thesis. Uh, what I hope to do is to bring people into this world of ideas. Uh, don't do any moral curation for them. Don't force any conclusions at them, and and let people wrestle with it. And and a lot of a lot of the readers have said exactly what you just said, Rob. That these you know there are some scary ideas here. There are some really extreme things going on, but. Uh, but I'm not quite sure what I think of Bannon and all this. I even there was there was a reviewer from from the UK who said that Bannon came out darker and lighter than his than his media stereotype in the US because he's he's trafficking in these ideas, he's meeting these guys, but his own take on it makes him look uh, like a much more thoughtful thoughtful person. Um, well, I couldn't be well, here to say something like that because uh, I don't want I don't want a one sentence summary or thesis out of a book like this. Well, it matched up with my personal. Uh relationship with Steve. Uh, I mean, it's not a, it's not a hugely in-depth one, but it's enough to know the man. And I, I mean, I've spent out a couple hours in a car with the guy before going to different destinations and everything. So we've talked. Uh, and uh, what I saw in the book was, was Bannon, uh, while I might not have known exactly what the concept was called and those kind of things, and as you laid out this traditionalism uh, model and philosophy, I could see that, but what really struck me was it confirmed what I already knew about him, which he is a very in-depth, complex person. And I don't know if the word brilliant is the right thing to use with him, but he, but he gets it. You know, I like that term. He, he gets it when it comes to culture, uh, where politics fits in that. He gets it where, uh, where uh, we see what's happening within, in the case of the United States government or in the case of what's going on with China uh, these days uh, and Russia too and Europe the European Union uh, he he understand he has an understanding of those complexities all at once that I had always known but I'd never had a, had like a formal you know way of thinking or philosophy to put to it and it made sense to me so you did a good job from that perspective uh, on the book but I do I do want to it is very interesting because I'm a student of a man, uh, he's a fighter pilot, I'm an Air Force guy, uh, mm-hmm. but his name is John Boyd. Have you ever heard of him? I haven't. I haven't. He came up with a concept called the OODA loop, Observe, Orient, Decide, Act. But 
and, and the military around the world uses that for planning and operating. Uh, it works for a 30-second dogfight between two fighter jets all the way out to a big armor-on-armor, force-on-force fight. But it also works for day-to-day decision-making, too, uh, if, you, if you think about it. But that's not what was so interesting about him. As you dove into this guy, he, his main thesis, to use that term, uh, was a work called Patterns of Destruction and Creation. And he had a briefing book about this thick of, of old school paper charts, you know, yeah. <laughs> that you'd put on overhead projectors. And it's fascinating because I, I have never, I'm going to go back and do some more research on him to see if he had come across this concept of traditionalism. But it seemed that, and this is another thing that made me excited outside of the Bannon issue and probably is why we got along is because this creation and destruction in order to move forward into the future is a concept that doesn't just apply to governments. It can apply to a lot of different things, organizations and those kind of things. And it's something I was taught early on, not formally as an academic, uh, you know, with a philosophy, but, it, but as uh, you know, on the job training from leaders that mentored me along the way. And then, and then studying guys like Boyd. So you may want to take a look at John Boyd and, and check out his briefing, The Patterns of Destruction and Creation, uh, because he was very intellectually, he, he, was, uh, he was much more than just a fighter pilot that could kick your butt in 30 seconds in the air, and that's what he was known for. <laughs> yeah, yes, uh, yeah, of course. But so do you is, think... Go, go ahead. ahead, go ahead. I was, I was just going to say, I mean, that they, I, it, it's something that interests me a lot, and, and again, it's not always of, of, of a concern to, to academics, but a, a lot of these ideas that we see written down and written in very complex ways, and the stuff I wrote about for this book is certainly an example of that, sometimes they, they can live intuitively with, mm-hmm. a, with a lot of different people who had never never set foot in a, in a university library, let's say. Uh, and that is, yeah, as you say, that's fascinating to see the connections. Yeah, and, I, and, I, and it was taught to me by men and women that had gotten, gone through the school of hard knocks uh, and been leaders. And some of them had been, you know, really successful in academia, too, along the way. Uh, but, uh, but we use that to address bureaucracy. That's how you change bureaucracy and get it to uh, get bureaucracy to bend to, to a future path is, is by using a technique of, of destruction and creative behavior, uh, not to like blow things up uh, yeah. figuratively, but it's it's or literally it's it's a it's a concept to, to get bureaucracies to change, and it's very difficult. I remember I I spent 33 years in the Department of Defense, the largest, most unmoving bureaucracy you could ever think. <laughs> So that's where it comes from. And 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 it's fascinating me that I've now connected it through political life and in my military life. But I was just wondering if you'd ever heard of him. So do you think Bannon is really a traditionalist with a capital T? Or I get the sense that he's a mixture of some things or that you you didn't really want to draw straight conclusions, I I gathered, from the way the book ended. But but it seemed to me, what I got out of it is that he's a complex set of ideas that or tend to work together with this guy and other people uh, for different objectives. Does that make sense? It it is. I mean, I th- I think he's he's complicated. It, it's it's tough because I'm 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 kind of agnostic about giving these labels to people if they themselves mm-hmm. embrace them. But I can yeah. put it this way. So Steve Bannon he also reads Joseph Smith, right? The Mormon prophet. Yeah. 
And, and you know, he's read some of his books. He thinks that there, there's a little bit to him. But if he not only read those books, but thought they were, in, in some sense, if he admired them, if he didn't just admire the teachings, but he identified with them, with the fact that he read the books. I read a lot of books. I don't identify myself with everything I read. If he didn't just identify, but he uh, would go out and associate and organize and meet other people who also admire these books. And if in the end he would would occasionally on certain certain occasions uh, describe himself as, as being a reader of Joseph Smith and an admirer and, and, and really actively identify that, we wouldn't call him just a reader of Joseph Smith. We would call him some sort of Mormon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And he does all those things with traditionalism, uh, with this set of texts. The problem here is that it's such a diffuse and at times very vague set of teachings that if, you know, if I were to flat out say Steve Bannon is a traditionalist, someone could could pick at that. I probably wouldn't believe them, but there'd be no authority to settle uh, yeah. settle our dispute. So I leave I leave it I leave it open. Uh, it's clearly part of his thinking, and I. And, I, and it also predates a lot of his other political and ideological changes throughout his life. I mean, we're talking at least at least the early 1990s. I was able to confirm, you know, some association that he was meeting meeting people uh, based on this. And of course, I I believe and take the stories he told me about earlier decades uh, as true as well. But at least the early 90s, I could I could track and pinpoint and confirm something. So that that. Uh, is is in the terms of his biography, this is an ideological persuasion and engagement that lasts a lot longer than a lot of other stuff. So yeah, yeah. What, ben, what answer, you, there's no there is no straight answer. I'm afraid of the question completely. That's that's what I was expecting you to say, but I wanted the audience to hear it because that that is exactly the way I see myself. I see Steve Bannon uh, and, and others that have worked in this. Uh, you know, I mean, look. Uh, you can Google me and find headlines where I made David Duke have a meltdown because, uh, you know, the guy's ideas are just wrong uh, uh, and those kind of things. But I've also been called a white supremacist and an extremist and those kind of things uh, because yes. uh, I firmly believe in a concept that used to be OK in this country, the Constitution and Declaration of Independence. Uh, but 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 so I don't like the label I've thing. I, I, people say again. I was going to say I've been I've been attacked too simply for not, yeah. not using uh, inflammatory enough language when I'm talking about someone like <laughs> Steve Bannon. Well, yeah. you know, and uh, I'm I'm all for using inflammatory language when it's appropriate, but when it's not appropriate, uh, uh, you know, we're we're having a discussion. You started out that flat out saying, "Hey, I'm a leftist professor," uh, and uh, and we should be able to have a discussion about this topic. Uh, and come out on the other side, not even have considered ourselves debating, but having a civil discussion and, and, and maybe both of us learn something on the other side of the conversation. That's what uh, being an American, in my mind, is all about. And I think that's what being a human being uh, is all about and what and, and living in a free, as free a world as possible should be about. Uh, and we see far too much of the, the crazy talk <laughs> Uh, on all sides, on all sides uh, these days, yeah. and, I, and I'm sure that I've been in the heated discussions before and said something that I shouldn't uh, probably have said in a way that I that I shouldn't have said it. But you know, it is what it is. That's where we're at, uh, and we can do. But we can do more of this. And uh, so, where do you think Steve Bannon? Uh, where would you see his influence heading? 
you know, you mentioned that, uh, you know, I mean, I want to see him continue to work. I continue to work in, in politics and now the media. This is a small comp- small business that I operate doing this show uh, and those kind of in my website and those kind of things. And I want to see Steve continue to work in uh, uh, in helping humanity really is what it is uh, and, and try to keep it from doing the things that we've seen happen uh, throughout human history uh, in some of these cases, like, you know, World War II and those kinds of things. Uh, and I think he's a person that's perfectly capable of doing that uh, and uh, should be one of the leading intellectual minds uh, on the front. Where do, you, where do you see him? You've spent a lot more time with him and gone in depth with him. Uh, do you see him as being able to be influential or something else in the future? It's, it's hard to say. He's, he has some serious troubles right now. Uh, mm-hmm. You know that, and I assume, I assume your listeners who are, who are surely up to date on this know as well, he has some serious legal troubles in, in New York and will have a trial uh, in May surrounding this, this We Build the Wall uh, yeah. organization. I'm somewhat skeptical about that, that case, and, and actually Politico ran a piece noting the many ways based on their review of the documents that, that he probably has an out. And yeah. it won't be picked up, but it's, it could be a sort of prelude of things to come. I think, I think he has a lot of people, people chasing him and that, that can have, have an impact. But the one thing that would make me think that we have not seen the end of him is that if you look at his background, it has been, he has been a hurricane of activity. He has started yeah. so many projects and obviously a lot of them are going to fail. But the abs- the you know the key to his success has just been the generation of of initiatives, and that has kept him that has kept him fresh. The fact that he's he's paying attention to economics, politics, culture uh, in a really holistic way it, it it means also that he has his ear to the ground in ways most people I, I think don't anticipate. So so he could he could stick around. I mean, you have to look at also at the way media commentary has taken shape about him these last years. Really, since he left the White House in 2017, there has been a, a veritable genre of media coverage on Steve Bannon saying that he is irrelevant and saying that he is a blowhard and he has a big ego. And yes, he does have a big ego and that and that people need to stop paying attention to him. It's telling to me that that type of media commentary has basically been running the entire time. If you have to say yeah. over and over and over again for three years that somebody is irrelevant, you shouldn't pay attention to them. At a certain point, it's time to step back and say, what is it about this figure that is keeping him around despite the fact that, that so many in the media want, want him to disappear? So something about that that grit makes me not entirely convinced, legal troubles notwithstanding, that that this is the end of Steve Bannon. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you. I, I don't see an end to him, and uh, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. There's a reason why they, for three years plus, they keep talking about how he's going away, <laughs> because he generates it. I mean, he's on the air today on uh, a friend of mine, Jack Posobiec, uh, who's another part of this. Uh, yep. a, a set of people. Uh, I don't even know what to call us, uh, but uh, he's interviewing him, I think, on OANN. He did it a couple hours ago today. So, I mean, he's he's out there and he's still thinking. And I think as long as he's doing that and he has the resources, he's going to continue with these projects. I mean, it's the same philosophy that most successful people, no matter what their field is, I mean, you, you don't 
shy away from failing and you just keep trying and trying and trying until you uh, you get something that works. And uh, uh, I know I've followed that and been taught to do that my whole life. So, but uh, one more question for you, and that sure. is, do you think he could be, you talked about him and Alexander Dugan a lot in the book and towards, towards the end of the book, uh, you talk about how Bannon still wants to see, uh, and I'm not sure I got picked up, picked up the message correctly. See, uh, America and Russia come together. Yes. Do you think it's ever possible? I mean, I honestly, look, I fought the cold war. My dad fought the cold war. My brother fought the cold war. I was very proud when we brought the Berlin wall down and the Soviet union and all that. Uh, but, but I think there is space for the United States and Russia to be on allied terms more than they are on adversary terms these days. Uh, so I kind of agree with Bannon without knowing the depth of, uh, of what he's talked about with Dugan too much. Do you think there's, I know, I think you think he'll keep trying, but is there a way it could actually happen with this Dugan guy who now appears to be working for doing the Chinese message, uh, on the opposite side? I, I don't think Dugan is the pathway there. Uh, Dugan is quite committed, I think, to an opposite position of what, what Bannon wants to see in the world. But in, in term, if we want to speak in broader terms, even though Steve, Steve Bannon doesn't like materialism, I, I still have a hard time thinking about how geopolitics can be motivated without more consideration for economics. Yeah. And I think if, if the if the economies of the United States were more deeply in, and, and Russia were more deeply entwined, that that's that certainly would help. I mean, that's part of the story, but also also the catastrophe of the of the European Union, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Was the intertwining of economies to 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 force uh, a cessation of of military and economic antagonisms. Yeah. But uh, but if that could ever happen, and on what terms, and what that would actually look like, that that is complicated. That is complicated stuff, and I'm afraid I'm not a philosopher myself. So <laughs> that's above my pay, pay grade. Well, Ben, you certainly did a good job at sounding like you're a pretty good philosopher in this book. The way you did the interviews <laughs> and uh, and told the story, and I lied. I do have one more question for you. Uh, sure, sure. And that is Steve Bannon. I see him as one of the good guys. I know you don't want to put labels on anybody, but yeah. when you went into the book did, and when you came out of the book, uh, what were your views of this man? It, they were pretty negative going into it. Um, I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, I'm, I, I told you I, I, I lean to the left, even though I'm not, not the type of person on the left that can't have a conversation with anybody right. I, and, I, right. and I'm not yeah. that amused by the fact that I'm on the left. So, um, <laughs> but, but still my, my, uh, my position was, was critical towards him and coming away from the book. It's not as though I'm, I'm favorably inclined to the things that I didn't necessarily like about him before, but he's, he's become a multidimensional person in different ways. And there are things that I like about him. There, there definitely are, you know, I felt, Emotionally, I felt sad for him when he was when he was arrested uh, earlier you know, in in September. Yeah. So yeah. it's uh, you know coming away. I think that's true. That's true in all cases. I think I think it's very easy for us to have simple 
understandings of people who we don't know very well, especially public figures. And when you get to know them, it's like looking at the surface of a painting. It looks very clear when you're standing at, at a distance. You come up really close to it and it gets chaotic and and it gets much more complicated. And, and that's certainly my experience of of Steve Bannon. I, I am not bothered, I can tell you, either by the by the prospect of, of his voice contributing to certain conversations. I think he has interesting and on occasions relevant things to say about different different topics and items. So um, so so yeah, the politics are not a lot changed, but my impression of the person himself as a thinker, he's not just a political animal, he's much more than that, uh, is yeah. contains yeah. more shades of positivity. And I think we need more of those uh, thinkers uh, that will are willing to engage in politics. I know it took me a while and a long time to be willing to engage on the political side of life uh, in the yep. in the world and in the country, uh, it, because it's a it's a, it's a game, uh, and I use the word game very loosely, uh, but it's a, it's an enterprise that is as complex as as anything else. Uh, I've done a lot of complex stuff in my life. Uh, being in the military for so long, uh, and uh, this politics yep. thing is just as complex. And it, but we need more thinkers. We need more people that can articulate and communicate uh, uh, the thinking that needs to happen in order for our country to uh, and in the world really to move forward in peace and prosperity. And I think I think that would be my goal. Uh, and I think yep. that Bannon always has that as at the back of his mind. Uh, to uh, as an idea, you mentioned uh, as we close this out, Ben. Uh, you mentioned uh, initially that you, or, or before we came on, I think it was uh, that you weren't real pleased with the subtitle and the marketing of the book and everything. Tell my audience how you would like this book to be marketed and well, where I, they can go have... find it. Well, you can of course find it at fine bookstores everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's available on Amazon, War, War for Eternity. Uh, the European version actually has the subtitle that I, that I like quite a bit. It is The Return of Traditionalism and the Rise of the Populist Right. Pretty pretty plain, right? Un, un, unfortunately, yes, the American version has a much more, much more kind of incendiary and politically pointed subtitle. Uh, authors don't always get to get to choose those things. It's kind of like War, uh, reporters don't get to choose the headline, right? Precisely, precisely. So where can folks find you uh, and uh, uh, and keep an eye on the work that you're doing, sir? You can you can follow me on Twitter at Ben Title, uh, uh, or if you just look up Ben Titlebaum, you'll find me there. Uh, and and also I have a webpage, BenjaminTitlebaum.com. That's actually the best place. I'm not I'm not much of a Twitter user, so BenjaminTitlebaum.com. That's that's where I post articles, books, reviews, and, and interviews. Well, I found your website. I'll follow you on Twitter, but don't forget, Twitter is uh, is not the real world, and it's really rough and tumble in there. So don't it hold it against. Not. It is not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Professor Ben Teitelbaum, author of The War for Eternity. Uh, thank you, sir. I appreciate your time, and I appreciate your your intellectual uh, work in this work to to really show some of the figures around Bannon and and even Donald Trump, but really about my friend Steve Bannon, uh, I think it comes off uh, very, uh, uh, very informative uh, and uh, gives me a good feeling about it. So we appreciate your time. That's a heck of a compliment. I'm happy to have it. Thank you for having me on, Rob. All right, thanks a lot. America's under attack. 
and they're all around us. I'm talking about liberal Democrats, and they're out to destroy everything that we've worked so hard for. Mammoth Nation's here to fight for you. You only get one vote, so let's join forces. We support conservative lawmakers and the causes you hold so dearly. We stand behind our police, veterans, the Second Amendment, and much more. We need your help, so join today. Well, I appreciate uh, Professor Teitelbaum joining us today to talk about his book, The War for Eternity. And as a reminder to my viewers, this book is not a hit piece on Steve Bannon or President Trump. It's very insightful and very creative in the way that it pulls out the facts and pulls out the insights that you just don't get on things like social media and television interviews. So until next week, I'm Rob Manis. <laughs>